You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. We so often forget that each bullet that killed someone in Vietnam stopped several other lives here dead in their tracks. The flag on the coffin covered only the obvious tragedy, and there were many, many, many others. Former Vietnam War correspondent Laura Palmer. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Memorial Day is the one day each year set aside specifically to remember and commemorate and celebrate the thousands of men and women who sacrificed their lives in war over the years. But of course, their deaths create a long and wide ripple effect that can affect families for years and generations to come. Since its opening more than 40 years ago, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. has become an informal but significant repository for families and friends to bring memorabilia of all kinds to leave at the wall. They leave everything from letters and poems to medals and teddy bears. In 1988, former Vietnam War correspondent Laura Palmer wrote a book about all those items left at the wall. She even tracked down many of the families who had left those items to interview them and get a fuller picture of exactly what it was they were trying to leave behind at the wall, all that memorabilia. She called her book Shrapnel in the Heart. So here now from 1988, Laura Palmer. Shrapnel in the Heart is about the lingering memory, love, and pain of the Vietnam War. And it was a title that just came to me. I had been to the memorial for the first time. I was on my way back to New York thinking about the possibility of doing this book, sitting on the Metro Liner and making notes on a legal pad, and suddenly it was there in my mind, shrapnel in the heart, and I knew from that instant that that was the title I... I wanted for this book. It's a moving title, very, uh, um, very poignant, and and very appropriate. Uh, people who lost someone in the war, people who loved someone in the war, people who fought in that war, uh, people like me who I was there as a journalist. Uh, we all have shrapnel in our heart, and sometimes it's it's a sliver of memory. Sometimes it's a slice of deep and terrible pain. But it is it is there in all of us. Does it surprise you in any way that the Vietnam Veterans Memorial has become the single best attended memorial in Washington? It surprised me at the time, uh, knowing what I know now about the feelings people have. uh, It doesn't surprise me. As I traveled across the country working on Shrapnel in the Heart, I saw the deep need to come to terms with the war, uh, not just in veterans, but in uh, families who lost someone in the war, really the people who buried their dreams along with the bodies. Uh, We so often forget that each bullet that killed someone in Vietnam stopped several other lives here dead in their tracks. Um, One woman who lost her fiancé in Vietnam said to me, I was supposed to marry Joey Sintoni in 1968. She said, I didn't find it easy to progress to Plan B because there was no Plan B. Uh, The flag on the coffin covered only the obvious tragedy, and there were many, many, many others. All the items that are left at the memorial, are those 
the kinds of things that we leave trying to come to terms with with what with the people that we've lost is is that the 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 effort to reach out with the placing of the medals placing of teddy bears uh letters for many people it isn't intentional i don't think they're really quite aware of of why they're doing it they just feel the need to bring something to the wall i interviewed the mother who brought her son's teddy bear to the wall and she said i can't really explain it but i felt like we were going to see ben and this was his teddy bear he took it to bed with him every night since he was a little baby and i just felt that he would like to have it with him and her husband and this was a couple in their 70s they were driving to the wall from Tennessee, and her husband said, now, Mildred, that's kind of silly. Uh, but she just put him in a little Ziploc bag, and he came to the wall. It, it really was a pilgrimage for many people, and I think when you're making a pilgrimage, you, you want to bring something. Uh, for many veterans, there's actually a, a need to, to lay it down, to, in some symbolic way, divest yourself of, of part of it. Uh, veterans leave journals, their military medals, their combat boots, um, all pieces of themselves. And it is interesting to me that although this was unexpected and an unintentional phenomenon, to the architect in her mind, she said the wall was never V-shaped, but it was always a circle to be completed by the thoughts and the feelings that people bring. Well, to that we can also add, and and the things that they bring. Um, When the wall was being built, the foundation was being scooped out of the earth and cement was being poured, a man came over to the construction workers and he asked them if he could drop his brother's purple heart into the wet cement. And that was the very first object that anyone is aware of being brought to the wall and one person said the wall has a heart and I I think that's really true. Now to put people's minds at ease, this stuff is not thrown away by maintenance workers at the end of the day. It's saved, isn't it? It is saved and it's, it's saved because no one could bear to throw it away. No one quite knew what to do with this but it was such moving material and so um emotionally charged that people just the the park service people kept putting it in boxes and a a year or two went by and someone said wait a minute let's let's take care of this let's protect it it's all now treated as a museum collection and it's logged in in a computer and uh, we really are in a sense writing a history of the vietnam war through these objects it's an epilogue a eulogy perhaps was this a book you felt you had to write now that it's finished, yes, although I didn't realize it at the time. Um, it literally came into my life quite unexpectedly. I had plans to go back to Vietnam and do another book about post-war Vietnam, and I went to the wall for the first time in 86 and was so fascinated at the idea that people were bringing things and leaving them there that uh, while I was waiting for my visa, I came back to do a magazine piece. and. When I went out to the warehouse where all of this material is kept and read through the letters and poems, uh, I simply couldn't walk away from it. It was, was too powerful, and it felt like, it felt like a cry for help. Uh, I'm sitting in this dark, cold, ugly warehouse out uh, somewhere in, in, in Maryland, and you're reading through these heart-wrenching letters 
uh, I couldn't walk away. I felt I had to know who these people were, why they had written. I couldn't believe that there was still that much pain connected with this war. I had worked in Vietnam. I had been in Vietnam. I thought I was fairly up to date on what was happening and, and what issues were still important. And suddenly here were all of these letters. I thought, who the hell are these people? Well, they were the mothers, the brothers, the sisters, the children, the wives, the sweethearts of the men who died in Vietnam. These are really the people who lost the most but have said the least. Everyone else has told us about Vietnam. We've heard from the generals and the journalists and the spooks and the diplomats, and everyone has probably marched into this interview room and sat down and told you about what the war really means. And in my book, we hear um, from another group that has suffered silently and valiantly um, for many, many years. And they talk about what it means to lose someone in a war that the country came to hate. After this short break, Laura Palmer reads one of the most heart-rending letters left at the wall. Now back to my 1988 interview with Laura Palmer. And do you have to seek out permission from people to print their letter? In a book? I did. Well, I, I yes, I did. And people were were willing. I think that I was surprised at how deep the need was to talk. And what has happened is that after 15 or 20 years, people don't bring it up. I won't ask Mrs. Smith about her son because I don't want to upset her. And Mrs. Smith thinks, well, I'm not going to talk about Johnny because no one wants to hear. So you have good souls who are willing to listen and, and troubled hearts who need to talk, but no one takes that first step. And I think uh, this Veterans Day and every day, really, it's a good thing to remember to reach out to people, to offer them the chance to talk. If you lost someone in, in the Vietnam War or any war, uh, there are always going to be days that are hard. The day he died, the day... Uh, the body came home, the day of the funeral, the day of his birth, the Christmas holidays. And those are times when we can really say, hey, come over. Why don't we have a cup of coffee and just talk? So one or two letters in there that, that maybe it's not appropriate to call them your favorites, but ones, the ones that, that hit you the hardest? That... There is one that, that I think speaks a lot about not only lost but about healing and it was written by a woman to her high school sweetheart she they met in the band in the back row of the band she played the tuba and he played the drums and this was in Minnesota in 1967 and Rick Ewald was killed in Vietnam in 1968 and her letter which was written by Carol Ann Page begins like this Hi, lover. Seventeen years, you're still twenty-one, forever young but gone, murdered, and nothing will make your loss to us less of a tragedy. The first gray hairs sneak onto my head as I face thirty-seven. I look into the eyes of my teenage son, and I wonder, have we done enough to change things? Have we done enough? What do you say, kid? I brought you flowers. I always brought you flowers, didn't I? Picked from the neighbor's yards on the way to the school bus. It's how we fell in love. And then I gave you daisies in the midst of all those white slabs of death. 
Your slab said they gave you a purple heart for dying. Well, this here letter is a purple heart for living. I thought it might mean more to you. The paper is a gift from my daughter. She loves purple. She's ten years old and beautiful, and someday she'll have a first love, too. I hope he has your kindness and humor, and when she's 37, and still looking for some of those answers, I hope they can touch one another and talk of how they've changed, and say thanks for having been a part of my life when everything still lay ahead. It was important for me to come today to touch your name on the wall that makes it all real. I'm still trying to say goodbye. I never managed that very well with us, did I? But you made all of that okay, and that made a big difference in my life. The only way I've ever known to pay you back for that gift is to live my life as if it mattered and to work every day in every way for what is right. Oh, it was wonderful to be in love the spring of 65. That part of you will always be alive. Love doesn't divide, it multiplies. And the me I bring to the wonderful life and love I share with Dick and our precious, precious children is a me that is a part of you. I'll always bring you flowers. You gave me love. Goodbye. Hello, Carol Ann. I think that's important to point out that people feel the wall is not just a place for goodbye, but it's a place to say hello. It's a place to connect with the person you loved and lost. As I traveled the country for Shrapnel in the Heart, people would say to me over and over again, I know he's buried in Texas, I know the body's in Oklahoma, but there's something about that wall. I really feel as though his soul is in that wall. And one of the men I interviewed who lost his brother in Vietnam said um, that to him, the wall is really heaven. He said the country went through its own purgatory, and then those names were resurrected. And you can get your copy of Shrapnel in the Heart by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're at heardeverything.com, don't miss my 1992 interview with former Vietnam War Army nurse Winnie Smith. 18, 20-year-old, you know, dying by himself 10,000 miles from home. And usually they were unconscious, but occasionally they would be awake. And they could grasp what was happening. And my 1986 conversation with one of the military leaders of the war, Admiral Elmo Zumwalt. The decision on the use of Agent Orange is not unlike most decisions in war, which are the least worst alternatives, uh, so it was with Agent Orange. We saved thousands, even though we are, in the long run, probably going to lose hundreds of those thousands. And, of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, my conversation with a very successful character actor and audiobook narrator, in fact, who later became a 20-year overnight success as a writer. My 2005 interview with actor Ron McClarty. And he said, are you Ron McClarty the novelist? Stephen King said, are you Ron McClarty the novelist? And I about croaked right there. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. <laughs>